What a day to be here. What a day to be talking to you about God's promises yet to be fulfilled on this, the last day of 2023, when we're standing at the doorway expectingly for 2024. So throughout the ages, we can see really clearly that God doesn't do anything without first revealing it to his prophets. We can see when we look back at fulfilled prophecy that every major thing that God has done throughout the ages was first shown to man. Does God need to show us his plan? Does him telling us what he's about to do somehow make it able to happen? No, absolutely not. But he does desire to share his heart with us. And by doing that, he reveals not only the very beating of his heart that is for us, but also the unfolding of the mighty overarching plan that he's put in place. There may be some promises of God yet to be fulfilled. For you personally, what has God spoken over your life this year, last year, 30 years ago, 70 years ago? What has God spoken over you that is yet to be fulfilled? For us as a church, what has God spoken into our midst? And he's reminded us even this morning of some of those promises, that this will be a place of healing, this will be a place of his presence. But there are also promises that God has spoken for his church globally, for his bride collectively. They're all different levels of prophecy, but they are all God's promises. The promises of God, you see, they work on multiple levels because God is a God of the infinite. Often they relate to something that's more or less in the here and now at the time the word is spoken. But as Cecile demonstrated a couple of weeks ago in the message about protecting the promise, God's words also often serve as a foreshadowing of a future event because they work on multiple levels. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure you've all read a book or watched a good film where the narrator hints at future events of a story before they happen. There might be a a micro, short-term event that opens our mind to the possibility of a bigger event unfolding yet to happen. And once we reach the end of the story or we reach the end of the film, we can often see how those things were interweaved together expertly by the story creator. And we understand how those, how those elements were built over time, encouraging us, strengthening us, and allowing us to see something we wouldn't have seen otherwise as we reach that crescendo in the story where the final plan is revealed and the final outcome is made clear. Prophecies can be fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled at the same time. God works across all layers and levels, seamlessly and simultaneously. 
For us, in our human form, we work on this level, then this level, then this level, then over here, then over there. But God deals with all of it in one stroke, in one word. God's promises apply to the immediate or the soon-to-be, as well as to the future-to-be situation that we're given a glimpse into prophetically. God does nothing by accident, and all things work together for good, for his purpose. Just like the master author, he has already woven together all the elements. Because he is Alpha and Omega, he is the beginning and the end. He knows the end from the beginning because he exists outside of time. He's beyond time. He's the creator of time. There is no limit with God. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. In the Old Testament, we'll find if we study that there are seven major feasts celebrated and observed throughout the ages by God's people. They were were reminders of God's providence, his provision and his presence among them. They commemorate events already happened, but they also speak of events yet to happen at the time that they were spoken and the time they were instituted as feasts. They are still observed by many Jewish people around the world and they remain key days in God's calendar. They are the appointed times of the Lord. And God loves to interweave unfolding elements in the greatest story ever created. The prophetic seed or foreshadowing contained within three of these feasts, which all take place during the springtime, were fulfilled through Jesus coming as Messiah, his death, his resurrection, and him dying sinlessly, fulfill those first three feasts. The last three will be fulfilled prophetically when he comes back a second time and the events that happen at the end of the age. Those last three feasts, as it so happens in God's perfect plan, all take place in the autumn of the year. The fourth feast, the one that sits in the middle, Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the fourth one in the middle of those, was fulfilled through the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it provides a bridge that empowers his people to work with the fullness of what he did for us sacrificially through his birth, death, resurrection and ascension while we wait for the fulfilment of the final three. Pentecost is even placed in the calendar between the spring and the autumn in the summer. So in a calendar sense, it sits between those fulfilled through his first arrival as a baby and his second coming as king. The Holy Spirit given as down payment for the promise yet to come. We might think of this as the age of the church. This is where we are now or when we are now in God's timeline. So why would God design it so that his promises of the future fulfilment are contained within 
the seeds prophetically of these seven major feast days. Well, first of all, he comes as saviour, as redeemer, then as outpourer of his spirit, then as the king bringing judgment and ultimate reconciliation and unity with his people. And one day I intend to ask him the fullness of his intent with that. But for now, what I can tell you is that he is a master creator. He's the master author. And like all good creators, he wanted to make sure the heart of his promise was not lost over the years. What better way to preserve his heart for us than by cementing his promises into the very fabric of Jewish history. They remain clear and unchanged into the future, preserved through the annual cycles that take place until they're fulfilled. It's a bit like making a time capsule and burying it in the garden and digging it up every year. It keeps intact those promises with integrity and clarity. So three major feasts that are yet to be prophetically fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. All of these celebrated events have happened. They are all ongoing regular events. And nothing that I say is going to diminish any of that. But their final prophetic fulfilment has not yet happened. And God's promises are contained within them. They are the past, they are the present, and they are the future, all at the same time, unchanged, just like God. My focus is mostly on the first of those three, the Feast of Trumpets with the second coming of Christ. But this would be incomplete without at least acknowledging the other two, and especially the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the culmination of everything where man and God are joined in perfect union, no barriers, and were able to worship him day and night and stand in his presence and see him face to face. The Feast of Atonement, just to mention, has already been fulfilled for Christians. For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, it has already been fulfilled. The same for Messianic Jews who accept Jesus as their Messiah. We've already been atoned for and there is nothing else needed. So for us, that feast is already in its fulfilled state. But there is more. For those who don't know God, there will be a final call to repentance in the very final days when people can choose to repent and if they do so, their names will be added to the Lamb's Book of Life. It tells us about that in Revelation 14. So that's something you can research and read in your own time. The final call for repentance for those still alive at that time. So let's unpack some of the scriptures that surround his second coming and the end of the age which surrounds that. In Acts, we are given an account of Jesus' ascension into heaven, which took place on the Mount of Olives. So reading from Acts 1, verses 8 to 11. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus there being lifted up, taken up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And the angel spoke to his disciples. And I'm sure some of the brilliance and the glory was reflected on their faces as they stood and looked up, wondering. But the angel said, he's not here. You're looking in the wrong place, boys. But he's going to come back again in just the same way. Soon, in First Thessalonians 4, it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and the left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. All those who are asleep in Christ will be raised first. Then those of us who are on the earth will rise to join them. It's a very good job we're not going to need air traffic control on that day because the skies are going to be pretty busy. The next scripture that I want to go to is Matthew 24. Now, depending on which version you you read this in, um, the version on screen starts with immediately after the distress of those days. Some versions talk about the tribulation of those days. So I just want to clarify something, that there is, in the very end times, there is Jesus coming and there is a time of tribulation. And there are three schools of thought about whether, whether we rise to meet Jesus in the air before the tribulation, midway through it, or at the end of it. And I'm not getting into that conversation today, but just so you know, there is some different views on that. So after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Imagine the skies full of the elect. That's us. Gathered from the four winds in every direction. Saints rising to meet their God. As far as you can see. I can't even fathom the picture. The millions of people rising up those who have died before us, those who are alive at that time. The sky just filled with the church, his bride, rising to meet him in the sky. What a wonderful day that will be. Zechariah, one of the Old Testament so-called minor prophets, also foretold this time. On that day, he said, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. 
and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of the east to the Dead Sea and half west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. And we've sung that this morning, haven't we? His name is the only name, and every knee will bow, and there is power in the name of Jesus. But on that day, when he stands on the Mount of Olives, he causes a separation. He causes a divide. He separates the with and against. Let's make no mistake, when he comes the second time, he comes in judgment and he comes in as king. But his name is one and he will command that we bow our knee, that everybody bows their knee to his name on that day. In 1 Corinthians 15, from verses 51 to 57, um, it's not going to be on screen, but it talks about a little bit more about that day. I'm going to read this from the message. It says, But let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery I'll probably never understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You hear a blast, end all blast from a trumpet, and in that time you will look up and blink your eyes, and it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment and in the same way, we will all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Every perishable thing taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. A blast to end all blasts. The trumpet sound from heaven. I can imagine the, the immensity of that trumpet call. You know, in the old days, they used to blast a trumpet as a signal. And one of the things that they signalled was for the workers to stop their labours and worship God. The trumpet was, it's time to stop working and time to start worshipping. That final trumpet call, it'll be the time for us to stop our working and to start our worshipping for the rest of eternity. And in that moment, we are all changed. Everything temporary gone. Instantly, all limitations of every kind, every sickness, every regret, every pain, our physical bodies, all gone, disappeared. Only that which is eternal, only that which is immortal will be left. Hallelujah. But the Bible does warn us that people will grow impatient. In Second Peter 3, it says, they will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it, as it has since the beginning of creation. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting to, everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward 
to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. He is not slow in fulfilling his promises. He is never slow in fulfilling his promises. But when he does come, it will be quickly. And he wants in his heart is for those, for those souls that are, that are filling the skies. He wants that to be everyone, every single one. Jesus opened the doorway and he wants it to be that everybody has walked through, which is why it has to be that the gospel was preached to the ends of the earth before that day. This scripture also talks about the coming of fire. It references in the bit that's um, in between, it also talks about a bit like the days of Noah and the flood. But God promised he was never going to bring flood and destruction to the earth by water, but he is going to bring destruction to the earth by fire. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know if you've noticed, it might just be me, but there seems to me to be a lot of activity in their, in their sort of sky-level heavenly bodies. I'm hearing a lot of reports about asteroids and, and things happening in space, the differences in the aurora borealis, the different qualities of light. There seems to be a shifting taking place. Might just be me, but I do wonder. I do wonder. Romans 8 carries on this theme a little bit more, from verse 19 to 23. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So I'm just going to pause there before I move on to the second part of this. Creation itself is longing for the sons of God to be revealed. The fullness of our sonship will be completed once we get to the marriage feast of the Lamb, the fulfilment of the Feast of Tabernacles, when we're forever united, joined with God in his perfection. And currently, even the earth is under this frustration that was brought about by sin, the sin that didn't start in the created world, sin that started in heaven, when Lucifer thought he was better than God, and we know the story. And it then was translated, a man gave away the earth, gave away his dominion over the earth, and the earth was cursed. And the earth groans under that weight, the weightiness of that, waiting for the liberation that is to come back into God's perfect order and perfect plan. And then picking up from verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The groanings as, as in childbirth are very much here. The Bible talks about wars, rumours of wars, earthquakes, volcanoes, eruptions, famines, pestilences and plagues. Well, pestilences has been removed from the Bible, but it was there. If you were a prophet living a couple of thousand years ago and God showed you a future picture of COVID-19, how would you describe it, I wonder? Hundreds of thousands of people dying all across the planet from something that couldn't be seen. I might, if I was 2,000 years ago, have described it as a plague or a pestilence. And although a lot of fear was brought in through COVID, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that this was of God, but what I am saying is it was not a surprise to God. 
It was all in his plan. He knew about it from the beginning of the earth, from the foundations of the earth. He knew about all these things that were still to unfold. And he told his servants, the prophets, about them long, long ago. We might think at times that the enemy has the upper hand, but he doesn't. Only for a tiny, short season, it is God who is in control. And he has told us how it all ends. Somebody doesn't like to hear preaching on the second coming because he knows that that signals his end, his finality. He knows the end of the story, just like we do. Revelation 21 talks about the newness that is to come when Christ returns. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. It's not quite yet done. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. The final chapter in the final book in the book, Revelation 22, tells us about the final ending when Eden is restored into God's perfect creation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And in that day, the promises contained within each of those seven feasts celebrated across time will have been fulfilled. All that God has promised will have come to pass. We will see his face, man and God walking together, serving him forever, worshipping him forever, his light sustaining us always, his glory surrounding us always, immortal in his presence, man and God dwelling together with no separation. And the final few verses of Revelation 22. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. I am coming quickly. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he is not slow in fulfilling his promises. His word will never, ever return to him void. It will always accomplish what he sets out to achieve when he sends out his word. But his desire is for all to be brought into his kingdom. All things are laid out in perfect order in his plan. He is the master author and he will fulfill his promises. His promises to you, 
his promises to me, his promises to us as an expression of his church, and his promises to the bride, his global, across all time, church. He is coming back again, and we will rise to meet him in the sky, whether we are a sleeping Christ at that time, or whether we are walking around doing what we are doing now. We will rise to meet him, and when he comes again, and we will be with him forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.